Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 12, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. On March 5th, our Roland Holmes died. He brought us soul jazz and cool. As a DJ, he was a champion of jazz as the original art form. He aired live 24-hour marathons on Ella Fitzgerald's birthday, among other annual jazz celebrations. I'd like to offer this tribute to him. Thanks so much, Roland, for those great notes. So today is the special election to fill the seat for the third district of the Orange County Board of Supervisors. If you live within this district, your vote is essential. Look up your voter pamphlet or the ocvote.com for your polling place. Polls will remain open today until 8 p.m. Now for today's guests. My first guest will be Andrea Leon Grossman, LA Deputy Director of Azul. She'll take up environmental justice in the coastal domain. Then in the Second segment, Danielle Watt and Jacques Bordeaux will post us on the upcoming Girls in STEAM conference, April 27th. I'm going to talk about some of the educational disparities, though. They're showing up with every intentional project they launch. So um, we're going to start with the hardball questions, and then we're going to go straight into the conference. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Andrea Leon Grossman. Andrea, you are there, are you not? Yes, I'm here. Excellent. Uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm going to introduce her. She's the Los Angeles Deputy Director of Azul, which advocates for the Latinx community in the coastal and ocean domain. Over the last quarter century, she's made the case, or cases, for social justice and has been involved in animal rights, juvenile justice, immigrant rights, and the environment. Born and raised in Mexico City, Andrea has made L.A. her home these last 25 years. She's co-authored a book entitled, since the book's in Spanish, and I'm not going to mess with the title in Spanish. It's entitled in English, Fracking, What Is It? and How to Ensure It Doesn't Destroy Mexico. It's a foundation for Mexico's legal fight against oil companies. She also recently co-authored Sustainable Energy Technologies by CRC Press. Andrea completed her teaching credentials at Instituto Anglo-Mexicano de Cultura, her Master's of Fine Arts at American College, her MA in Advertising Design at Syracuse University, and business leadership training at Harvard Business School, certificate in social media strategies and content marketing at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Andrea Leon Grossman. Thank you for having me. Well, first, we all got to know, tell us a bit about this, the charter for your organization, Azul. Mainly, it's mainly a, a California grassroots organization, No. Yeah, that's correct. We uh, are a uh, grassroots organization working with, to conserve marine resources. We treasure the life-sustaining force of the ocean as well as the physical and spiritual nourishment it provides us. Uh, we're people-powered and let, and let uh, effort, and we focus first on celebrating our rich Latino conservation traditions. We are mostly in California, but we have worked at the national level as well. And We'll get into some coalescing that you're able to do when we talk about specific projects. And I, I mentioned mainly about the social justice. I would like, if you could, to talk about how you yourself define environmental justice. And for me, as I'm attending more forums and having dialogues in other places, it seems to me it's, it's sort of a definition, a work in progress. Tell us what, how that definition is for you. Well, it's basically treating everyone the same regardless of race, regardless of income, regardless of where they live. And that has not happened right now, and that's what we're working towards. Okay. So we've on this show, we've covered a good deal about the key players in the climate change challenge, and um, I'm going to 
certainly I'm going to wrap the show with a word about what's going on on the this Friday. But I'd I'd like to, for you. You've written a bit about the the dysfunction in the blame game and the need to to stop creating sacrifice zones. We've talked a little bit about them, but talk about how the your construct of the sacrifice zones. Yeah, um, I mean we we've seen it all over. California and honestly the world uh, in terms of uh, we need energy, we need water, we need, we need all kinds of different things to have the life that we have. And what that means is that corporations just have built this, this economy where um, they just have this extractive economy and that means uh, they just do whatever they need to do in certain communities at the expense of certain people, and that means uh, people of color, that means immigrants, and that just needs to stop. Um, That also means uh, victim blaming. So if that means that we're driving gas cars, uh, people say, well, you want to drive, right? And that doesn't mean that we have to continue to do that. That means that we have other solutions. That means we can have great public transportation. That means we can have electric vehicles. So that's one of the things that Fossil fuel companies have done absolutely great in terms of communication, just blaming the victim and blaming the system, the system that they themselves have created. And the externalities, we've talked a little bit about them, but talk about how the externalities of the fossil fuel sector disproportionately affects the neighbors that you're carrying the banner for. Well, I mean, that's that's the problem. Uh, One of the things that happens is that well-off communities, they just don't see what is visible in other places. So uh, where we have extracted communities and where we have refineries, like places in Wilmington in uh, Southern California, uh, those are the communities that end up paying the top price with their health, with pollution, with noise. And those are the folks who end up paying with with their lives. And that's just completely wrong and, and immoral. So, and, and that kind of goes to one of the issues that we've had right now yes. and uh, that politicians keep pushing in terms of cap and trade and carbon tax and all these market-based driven so-called solutions that are not really solutions. Uh, we just call it uh, pay-to-poison um, schemes because it's just absolutely, again, immoral and wrong and reprehensible that someone is okay with saying, well, I'll just pay a little extra so I can just keep using what I'm using. Uh, when the whole scheme is absolutely wrong. And what we need is just command and control and regulations and just change the way that we're doing things so that we're not harming or killing other people. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Andrea Leon Grossman. She's the Los Angeles Deputy Director of Azul, Advancing Environmental Justice, as climate change is being tackled in all sectors on all levels. That on the uh, last week, the... California Coastal Commission adopted an environmental justice policy. What is your assessment of the language that was adopted? And we'll, we'll talk about your involvement in a bit, but what, um, what would you like to say about what was passed? And it was unanimous, by the way. That's correct. And we're actually very thrilled that this actually passed. It's the first time that they adopted such a policy. In the past, they only have disadvantaged community once in their whole strategic report. Now, this is a policy that is going to be implemented moving forward. And one of the key takeaways from what happened on Friday is that this policy can be also used on appeal. So if, if a project goes through and we know that it's going to impact a community negatively, especially based on, on the, their EJ status. It can be... Environmental a, justice status. Yes. Right. It could be appealed based on that. So I, I think it's a step in, in the right direction. We're, we're very thrilled that this went through, and, and we think it's, it's about time that this is implemented at this level. And we, we're hopeful that it's going to be the right p- type of policy for what Californians need. So, Andrea, take us behind the scenes with the groundwork to get this policy heard at the California Coastal Commission. Were you involved in some of that? Yes, I still was involved from uh, the beginning. This was a result of Assembly Bill 2616 by Autumn Burke. 
And so that policy was to provide uh, community of colors with greater representation, but explicitly referring to state civil rights law, a statutory definition of environmental justice, and the appointment of a commissioner experience in a dedicated environmental justice. So that means that Again, environmental justice communities are going to have representations, are going to be having a seat at the table. So we actually uh, were very engaged in this process, and we sent in a letter uh, with some recommendations, and the the Coastal Commission did adopt some of those recommendations. So again, at the end of the day, we were very happy with the adoption, especially that was unanimous by the Commission. And um, like with anything, we just are hopeful that everything's going to be great moving forward. As the commission said, there might be some hiccups along the way, and we're going to be there every step of the way to make sure that this policy is implemented in the best way that it can be implemented. Well, I I personally experienced the kind of leadership that Commissioner Turnbull Sanders has demonstrated. We had a water forum at UC Irvine, I think it was about two years ago, and she was at, she was on several panels and she sort of really dug down in what can the Coastal Commission do? Very solicitous of the contingents at the forum who aren't heard very often at major gatherings. There were indigenous representatives. There were underrepresented minority communities, emerging communities throughout. And it was very clear that Commissioner Turnbull Sanders was making was on the move here with getting something codified from the coastal zone aspect. Were yes, you working no, with we're, her directly? We're, we're happy that she's going to be the representative for the EJ seat, the, the environmental justice seat on the board. We are happy with the way she approaches this policy. And again, um, the devil's in the details, and we, we're just going to be there every step of the way. We need to make sure that this community is well represented moving forward. So, Anya, what kind of smarts for me is I was checking around after this policies adoption Friday, looking around through yesterday, and I mean, of course, the Coastal Commission on their website, they've, they'll bring, they've got the media covered that way, but it doesn't, it's not covered yet. I, I didn't get, my, my LA Times did not arrive today. Um, so I'm just wondering how you feel about mainstream media not getting this story. I mean, we, the story needed to go out. There's a lot expressed in this gesture of adopting this policy. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, that's one of the issues that we have with environmental justice as a whole. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get the coverage that it should be getting. And in the meantime, there's other stories that get out that kind of take over. So we, I mean, we're doing our best, letting people know that this is now the law of the land. And I you know, I'm right there with you that they should be getting more coverage and people should know that this is now the law and that they have rights. So, uh, again, we're going to be there all the way and we're going to let people know that they have a seat at the table now. So I haven't read the whole language, broken it all the way down, but I just wanted to know whether, Andrea, the policy as adopted and the, was it two plus year old law that codified that the Coastal Commission can now collect fines for violations against the California Coastal Code. Do the two of them have a potent kind of interplay there to really address these environmental justice problems? Um, Again, I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out, but that's what we're hoping that he's going to do. And again, I think towards the end of the Right before the vote, the, the main issue was that any project that is about to go through could be appealed on based on this law. And, yeah, I mean, the, the law was just implemented now. So we don't know how it's going to work moving forward, if it's going to be retroactive. We don't there's, – there's a few things that still need to be worked out. And one of the items that was mentioned with some of the others contributing their testimony before the California Coastal Commission Friday was the matter of where age, where the agencies convene their public meetings. And it was, at least there was a response to that. There is the uh, April California Coastal Commission sessions will be in Salinas. So the environmental justice measure is going to, is that one of those details too, is about where and when for everybody to be able to participate in presenting their views at Coastal Commission sessions. Right. And one of the recommendations was for people to be able to basically participate by video conference. So that means that people don't have to travel all the way to 
Salinas or wherever the, the Coastal Commission is having their meetings. And that way people could be more inclusive, you know, in terms of participation. And I think that's a great idea. And I don't know why that hasn't been the case before, because we've had the technology for a while now. So does Azul have a role in implementation, like in where the comprehensive programs and the coast, the local coastal programs and plans are being adopted? Not necessarily implementation, but we can always hold the Coastal Commission accountable to what this law is. And, I mean, you can count on us making sure that environmental justice communities are represented and that this law is, is basically implemented the way it was written. So does Commissioner Turnbull Sanders have your number on speed dial? Um, I'm not sure about mine, but I think the executive director, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Andres, so thinking, thinking big here, because I, I know you can, I know you have, but is this environmental justice policy a template for other agencies in the state of California as well as beyond and other states? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, there's, you know, this should be the pathway to get that done. At, at every level, not just, you know, Coastal Commission, but, you know, from the city level all the way to the federal level. I mean, there's no reason why environmental justice communities need to be represented at every, you know, from city to even, you know, neighborhood councils. Enough is enough. I mean, seriously, all businesses are represented from every aspect, and they have the capital to do that. Uh, environmental justice communities don't. So we need to make sure they do have a seat at the table and their rights are uh, looked after. So I would like to pivot to another arena, uh, specifically you're, you're affiliated with the Protect Playa now. Tell us about that current agenda. I want to give you an opportunity because we're talking about how media is not covering the what the Coastal Commission adopted, but and not enough is being said about the what Protect Playa now is doing with respect to communities affected by the recent blowout and uh, what lessons were learned from other blowouts in the Southern California area because there are communities are not equally affected by these blowouts from the refineries. Right, that's that's correct. And uh, one of the issues that we have here with the Bayona wetland is that we have a gas storage facility sitting on top with 34 wells, and each of those wells are just like Aliso Canyon, the one blowout that we had in um, 2015. So all those 34 wells are ticking time bombs. And then on top of that, there's all these other wells that are around, and some of them are active, some of them are inactive, and then there's some that are what they call buried. So um, there's a lot of development going on, and one of them just had a blowout in January 11th, and we just uh, were not told that that blowout happened until a week after. And actually, uh, an official notification has not even been made by the authorities. So it's really critical that we make sure that all the permits and all the regulations are implemented in that um, facility and also around those wells. And I don't think that's really the case, whether it's uh, the Coastal Commission, whether it's Dogger or any other state authority or even city authority. And that's, uh, that's a real issue. And a lot of these emissions that come out of that facility and all those wells just blow east. So that means Inglewood, that means East LA. And those are communities that are already overburdened with emissions from freeways and other um, oil exploration. The Alameda truck route, right. Yes. So we really need to make sure that we're looking after making sure that all these oil extraction and storage facilities meet the regulations while we basically go 100% renewable energy, because that's the ultimate goal. We, we need to stop this extracting economy, and we need to stop poisoning our communities. So if folks go to Protect Playa Now, is it .org, they can find out how to be, A, more informed, and B, what might be an important role in I guess it's a matter, I don't know if you can be proactive if the wells are already in there, but proactive, I guess, in contingencies for blowouts and possibly to raise the accountability of and, and the transparency of well, there's, the functions. Well, there's actually something that is happening uh, yes. at the city level, which is the stand motion, stand together against neighborhood drilling. And that will have a 2,500-foot uh, buffer zone between any oil and gas activity and where people live, work, play or worship, and that we're hoping that he's going to come back before the city council for a vote uh, sometime in, in the summer. In the summer. So hopefully if this goes through, 
this facility will have to shut down along with 85% of all the oil wells in L.A. And we need, we need that motion to go through to protect our communities. Okay. So, again, could you, Andrea, what was that, the name of that movement there, Stand Against the uh, Neighborhood Drilling? What was the whole name? Stand Motion. Stand, uh, stand Motion. Yeah, stand, oh. stand Together Against Neighborhood Drilling. And there's, there's that movement that basically is supporting this motion, uh, which is Stand LA, and making sure that we turn out for that city council vote, because you can bet that the oil companies are going to turn out their own people to make sure that this doesn't go through. So we need to protect our people. We need to protect our environment because this is the city that we have and that we live in. And, uh, and we, we, we really need to look for our own interests. Well, I hope you'll come back and we can <laughs> telegraph that. And I'm, I'm hoping Steve Lopez is going to be starting to follow this. He's got his hands full with making sure that the California Coastal Commissioner's ex parte conversations are more transparent and uh, that we're not covering the tab for their legal fees and that kind of thing. But I, I, we all get the drama there. And there's a point well taken there, Steve Lopez. But Steve Lopez, there's all this other going on. I hope he'll, in the L.A. Times, take up this uh, to cover that. I mean, we're... We're College Station here. We're, we're doing what we can do. So are you coalescing then with the Communities for a Better Environment? I think I've seen some indicators. You're working with Alicia Rivera and others, and she's been on this show, but, and the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Are you working with all of those usual suspects? Yes. Yes, we are. And uh, especially uh, CBE, Alicia, is working with STAND because they're affected by oil extraction in Wilmington, oh, as well as the refineries. Unfortunately, I don't think the stand motion would shut down the refineries, but it will shut down all the oil wells right next to the refineries. And that's really important. Oh, wow. Well, environmental justice, so it's like the original sin. Um, they, they, they talked about that at the Coastal Commission. They actually talked about the original sin of the displacement of indigenous people. So I, I don't know how that felt for you uh, working with Latinx. Was it the opposite of poverty is wealth? Uh, so did, did the, the whole did that form give you some kind of I don't know about hope, but give you some some feeling that progress is with the yeah. root. I mean, it, 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 it does give me hope. And I did say that the opposite of poverty is health. health. If, you, if you live in a place where there's no oil extraction and there's clean air and clean water, you don't have to worry about your health. And that's where people in, in well-off communities have. They don't have to worry about, you know, toxic air and pollution and, and, and brown water coming out of their tabs. So that's why every, every Angelino and every Californian deserves not just people who live in certain areas of the, of the state. So that's why Azul is fighting this fight, and we think it's a fight worth fighting, oh. and that's why we're here. So, Andrea, as, as we're about to close, I'd like to—it's a big question, though. I'd like to know if there are tools for Azul and affiliated organizations, tools in the House Resolution 763 and the Green New Deal. Yes. Uh, what we're exciting about the Green New Deal is that it's a comprehensive resolution and eventually will be a bill that just it's not just about transitioning to clean energy, which is a very important goal, but it's also about having a more inclusive economy, not just an economy for Wall Street, but an economy for everyone. So everyone who wants a job can get a job and also is, is something that is sustainable for everyone, not just for a few and is having a livable planet. So that's why uh, we are engaged with the Sunrise Movement, and we're happy to be part of the solution and party to be fighting this, this great fight, because uh, it's, it's a fight that, is, that must be fought. You know, Andrea, I want to add to that the line, a livable and a neighborly planet. Our neighbors. Correct. we got to remember our neighbors. It's not just our little mansion. So, well, I want to thank you for carving out time, your busy schedule. Thank you, Andrea Leon Grossman. She's LA Deputy Director of Azul, Advancing Environmental Justice as Climate Change is Being Tackled in All Sectors and All Levels. Thank you for being on the show today. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with our heavy hitting Daniel Watt and Jacques Bardot, two essential providers at UCI's chemistry and space time limit. Stay tuned. Don't go away. I see trees of green In red roses too 
Jean-Baptiste, wonderful world. And there is no irony meant. This world needs to be taken care of, and that's it's because of its wonders and everything else. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests are Daniel Watt and Jacques Bordeaux, two, as I said, two essential providers at UCI's Chemistry at the Space-Time Limit. That is Castle from here on in, folks, presenting next month a conference that will make sure gets on to everyone's calendar. Girls in STEAM conference taking place April 27th. Though uh, we, th we thought we'd just give everybody a chance to make plans accordingly, spread the word and all that kind of thing. First, returning to Ask a Leader's Daniel Watt. She's the Director of Education, Outreach and Diversity for the National Science Foundation for Chemical Innovation at Castle at UCI. In this role, she's responsible for the professional development of center trainees, K through 12 outreach programs, and the recruitment of underrepresented groups in STEM to engage in center research. Programs at UCI that she serves on is the Graduate Division Advisory Council on Diversity, the STEAM Outreach Council, and member of the National Science Foundation Supported Center for Advancement of Informal Education Broadening Participation Task Force. She's received the Distinguished Service Award for Exceptional Leadership and Community Service to the Orange County Youth Community and STEM by the National Coalition of 100 Black Women Orange County. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry from Albany State University, Albany, Georgia, and her Ph.D. in Biological Organic Chemistry from the University of Connecticut, Storrs, Connecticut, where she studied how chemicals in the environment may damage DNA, causing mutations that could ultimately lead to lung cancer. Daniel went on to conduct biomedical research in the fields of cancer development, DNA replication, and repair as a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, NIH. Uh, before joining Castle Center, she was visiting scientist at Omeo University, uh, Sweden, studying DNA replication enzymes. Prior to transitioning to higher education administration to focus her efforts on the professional development of early career scientists and increasing underrepresented minorities in STEM through K-12, through Daniel has the heft of more than 15, I mean, we have to say 16, add to that, 16 years experience exposing youth to careers in STEM through hands-on activities. Our second guest is Jacques Bordeaux. He's a Castle partner in informal science education. He's the founding program coordinator for the Friendship Baptist Church Science Fund Day and has been advocating for championing STEM education for 30 years. He taught math, science, technology at an Los Angeles Unified School District Middle School was the educational coordinator for the Access Center at Cal State Los Angeles, designed and implemented science and math enrichment programs for underserved students such as Saturday Science Academy, college preparatory programs, and residential math and science summer camps. As the director at the Science Center School Project, he designed and launched the Science Center School at the California Science Center and served as the Inner City Education Foundation. He was the founding board director of the uh, ICEF and Englewood Charter Middle Academy. He's retired from the college board 2016 after launching the revised SAT in over 15 school districts in Los Angeles, Orange, and Riverside counties. He completed his BA in sociology at Cal State Fullerton, his secondary mathematics teaching credential at Cal State University Dominguez Hills, and his master's in science education at Cal State University, Long Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jacques Bordeaux, and welcome back, Daniel Watt. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and I think it's a pleasure to return. It's, it is really, really wonderful. And I want to say, and Jacques is coming to us from La Palma, and Danielle joins me in studio today. First, I don't know how, how to put this in the best way, but it's it's really agonizingly challenging, it must be, to provide opportunities in your respective capacities to underrepresented students amidst the persistent structural barriers. And I'm I'm personally I'm familiar and I want to call out zip codes matter. We know we can just we can map the education foundations that have been established at the district and the school sites. So I, I want to sort of honor take stock of how you two 
are trying to shore up where the enrichment programs, the steady support of, of academics is not happening in these underrepresented communities while you're watching checks just getting cut right and left to keep those foundations in even public schools in Irvine Unified, I'm calling it out. Uh, mm-hmm. it, so, so tell us about how you handle that. Uh, this is Jacques. I, you, you, you mentioned some structural inequities that exist across zip codes and I can attest to that, and it it is more than just structural. It is historical. It's sociological. There are a lot of different components to it. The the schools that I taught in, and and then served once I left the classroom, uh, were all schools where there was little or no science taught. And when it was taught, it was taught by people who might have been teaching out of their specialty. Uh, Maybe they were long-term subs. They weren't as experienced as others. Uh, They didn't have as much time in fight or time in the profession as others. And my experiences in Los Angeles Unified as a teacher and then as a parent in Anaheim Union uh, school district is that depending on your zip code, you could uh, encounter different kinds of barriers to STEM success. Maybe you go to a school where there aren't as many offerings, and in another case, maybe you go to school where you are the one and only student in that, uh, or student of color in that classroom. Both of those situations present some very serious barriers to success in in mathematics and science. So it's a long conversation. I'll warn you about that right now. (laughs) Danielle, do you want to... I'm. I know. I, I'm not trying to do that as a gotcha question because I know you're. You're representing the. Oh no. That that. But both of you. And but Danielle's representing now. I mean, she's employed at UC Irvine, and it's a. It's from. It's kind of a. You know. It's a subversive question to me to ask about the disparities. Cause, but that's. But you're there because those disparities still aren't addressed. Yes, definitely. And so, um, it. Jacques had mentioned a couple of key uh, facts here that I'll respond to in a minute, but just to co-sign to what he's talking about as far as disparities within school districts or zip codes, um, you know of our partnership with the Boys and Girls Club in Santa Ana, and just looking at the disparities within the school district in Santa Ana alone with many of our students that we've worked with in our outreach programs do not have consistent science instruction on um, um, throughout the school year, and so our after-school program for some of these students may be the only science that they receive throughout the school year, which Absolutely. we which we discussed previously. But then um, I had recently read a report, the National oh. Survey of Science and Math Education, which was published December 2018, and Jacques mentions several things that was also um, highlighted in this report: that science classes in schools with the highest population of students eligible for free or reduced lunch. So, of course, those are students coming from low socioeconomic um, communities. Title ones yeah. sort of schools. Yes. Okay. They're less likely to have teachers that. Um, are less likely to be taught by teachers with a substantial background in STEM. And so that means that they may not have a degree in STEM. They may have had less than three advanced courses in STEM or science and and math. And so that goes back to what he was saying as far as teachers may be teaching outside of their comfort zone or expertise. So imagine a wide-eyed question from a student to a teacher who's not demonstrably literate in that STEM class. I mean, imagine there, there's where opportunity cost right there. It's lost. Yes. Yes. And it it, is, it, yeah. uh, let me uh, interject something there. Um, that phenomenon of a teacher maybe being a chapter ahead of his students uh, is real. And unfortunately, it leads to a lot of misinformation and misconceptions in the science classroom. So imagine a, an elementary school teacher or a student who is getting some science, not much, but some, but it's not really good science or it's not complete science uh, in the sense that critical thinking is being promoted and problem solving is being promoted and a scientific 
structure for doing investigations is absent. There is, I'll take almost any science instruction I can get for kids. But in our program, the Saturday Science Monday at Friendship Baptist Church, where we are the beneficiary of Dr. Watt's outreach efforts and her instructional expertise, we know that the science that she brings to our students on those Saturday mornings is going to be authentic. It's going to be uh, standards-based. It's going to be hands-on. It's going to be discovery and, 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 and problem-solving uh, based. And we can build on that uh, the next time we meet. So, you know, good science is always preferable to the stuff that we get sometimes when teachers are doing the best they can, but they're doing it with one hand tied behind their back because they are teaching in fields where they're, they are not the expert in the room. And let me add this little addendum. I speak from experience. I started my teaching career as an uh, emergency substitute in LAUSD, and I had to develop myself into a science teacher, and that took some time. I had to get my credential while I was teaching and raising a family and so forth and so on. So I come to this understanding of what students don't get in uh, certain zip codes because for a while I was the guy who wasn't getting into it, if that makes sense. It does. Okay. I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm no, not... that's important. That's important for sure. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Case UCI. My guests are Danielle Watt and Jacques Bardot, two providers here at UCI's Chemistry at Space Time Limit. I'm calling it Castle for short. Presenting next month a conference that will make sure everybody gets on their calendar. It's Girls in STEAM. The, um, science, technology, engineering, well, art, mathematics. I mean, I, for, for some reason, STEAM is science. Science is what runs through all those. So, yes, and that's on April 27th. The cost is free. Folks, though, must register so they know how many of you are coming. And they and so fill up everything. And I, I'm going to give everybody all the other contact information on the podcast summary. So but let's go talk about what your goals. I mean, we've sort of nibbled around the edges of what your goals are going to be, but what do you want to get done at this conference on April 27th? And it's a morning deal. Yes, yes. So got a lot, you got a lot done. Yes. yes. <laughs> so the conference is designed to get approximately 150 girls in, <clears throat> excuse me, Orange County, LA County, San Diego County. Um, we have reached out to different communities that we've partnered with in the past to attend this conference and really be exposed to different career options in the STEM fields, STEAM fields, um, and to see women in these particular areas that they may not be familiar with or women that they do not see represented in these different disciplines. You know, it's been well documented that there are stereotypes, gender biases in the STEM fields. And um, there are actually several studies from a professor at University of Texas, um, Dr. Bigler, who specializes on social stereotyping and children's perceptions of discrimination in STEM. And one thing that I found that was interesting from one of her recent studies was that um, stereotyping of occupations begins as early as the age of three. Oh my goodness. Where students can, you know, children can recognize what uh, occupations are where women usually hold or men usually hold, and they see that they're unequally distributed in certain jobs, and STEM fields are among those. And then uh, another um, professor from University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Crum, who is a gender and racial inequality in educational experiences and achievement in STEM professor, who discussed um, in another one of her studies that if people around you think that you are in not capable, it has a negative impact on your sense of belonging. So women's sense of belonging in STEM fields um, is really impacted about by, by their performance as well. And you don't have to believe in these stereotypes for them to hurt you. And so um, and there's other recent studies within the past year that shows that girls 
and when they enter middle school, their interest in STEM goes down. And part of it is because they'd have that, they don't have a true sense of belonging in the field. They don't see women represented in the fields. And so, and they might even be discouraged from, you know, um, may be discouraged from being pursuing, recruited. yes, being recruited and, be, and pursuing those uh, STEM careers. They may not have the support of their community, their family, um, and just feel like they don't have that, you know, that this is not the career for them because they don't see it. And so that's what I want this conference to, to change. So we have graduate students who, who are women. We have women faculty members, in addition to male um, graduate students and faculty undergraduate students that will be facilitating some of the workshops that we have here. But we purposely had recruited more women so the girls will be able to see a diverse back, racial background of women in STEM fields. And the they're, those are sort of local rock stars that I just want to know if there's any way you're going to be able to bring in all the the astrophysicists, the, the all the NASA rock stars. Are you? Is there any any way you can sort of trot the, their profiles out for the, these girls to take in? Yes. Yeah, so, at the beginning of the conference during the welcome, we'll definitely feature um, some of the historical figures, the women who went under underrepresented, um, women who were not recognized for their contribution to the STEM fields. But I also want to highlight some of those who are women who are still practicing, in our who midst. are very active in what they do and successful. And so, I don't want the the girls to just be focusing on, um, you know, the historical figures that went unnoticed or whose stories were untold, but to also recognize that we're, you know, we're here today. There is an abundance of us. And although we may not be recognized, we're going to be telling our stories so the girls are aware and will be able to tell their stories eventually to the next generation of um, scientists, engineers, um, computer scientists, mathematicians, physicists, you know. And so that's what one of the major goals of this conference is um, going to do. Jacques Bourdon? Um, you know, the, uh, the conversation about how early a child can start differentiating what is what society thinks is a male role or a female role fed our curriculum at our Saturday Science Fun Day in our last um, edition in February, our youngest kids, our kindergarten and our first and second graders, literally the instruction was, what is a scientist? What does a scientist look like? What does a scientist do? And begin showing them images of, of people that look like them in those roles. And they exist. They have existed for a long time. My father was a physicist back in the days when there was no such thing as a black physicist. And um, where was he, if I may ask? We were in, uh, he was at the University of Chicago. Oh, okay. Uh, and he worked on uh, a, a huge machine called the cyclotron, which is basically an atom smasher. And he worked on a team that was led by Enrico Fermi. Now, that's a historical fact, but he had to fight in the 40s and 50s and 60s the images of the, the – when you think of NASA, when you think of great right. scientific uh, accomplishments, if you think of all of those scenes that you've seen in all of the movies of the control rooms while the grave astronauts are you know, going into space, there is no one of color in those control rooms and that's the environment that that we have promoted and we have neglected a lot of of talent think of how much talent we have flushed down the toilet because that talent was embodied in either a black body or a female body or a hispanic body or a foreign body it is it we disregard the contributions of a lot of people simply because of their gender or their race and if we want to solve some of the problems of a world that is, has some significant challenges, uh, we better, as a society, begin accepting the contributions that all people have to make. Uh, you know, the, the final cure for cancer may come from a Hispanic brain. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, how we finally take ourselves off of fossil fuel, may come from a female brain. And, and we have to start accepting the scientific 
the engineering, the medical, the mathematical contributions that all of our citizens have to make, because those are the people that are going to have to live in the world uh, that we are uh, making right now. And I guess what also comes to mind is the bias. If the, all the researchers are of a certain ethnicity, the bias for the outcomes then exclude minority communities and, per, and individuals as beneficiaries well, of the research. A good example of that is some medical research. Most medicines are tested for white men. You know, so if, if you are it's not about a white a dude, man, yeah. are there some side effects that are going to affect you, uh, either because of your gender or your ethnicity or your your own personal genetics? And it, I, that's a simple illustration, but that happens throughout the field. And the, the efforts that the STEAM conference makes, that the Saturday Science Monday or any of the other programs that we, we have, I have administered and, and Dr. Watt is administering now are rest on a very simple premise. We need to get more people of color. We need to get more girls interested in, exposed to, investigating the different fields of mathematics and science. Daniel, did you have something to say to that? Oh. I've got a question. I want to know how how interactive will the the STEAM conference for the girls is going to be? Because you've got You've got lots of sorts of examples, profiles to present to them to plant the ideas that they're part of all this going mm-hmm. on. And so uh, how interactive is it going to be? And what's a good way for them to prepare for making the most out of this conference? Yes. Yeah, so some of the highlights from our um, efforts, outreach efforts, have been that they're hands-on. They're not strictly demos. Yeah. And so I like to engage the students, get them genuinely interested, and just change their perception of science and math all the STEAM fields. So we've partnered with the School of Engineering, their Office of Access and Inclusion, and the girls will be developing um, mobile apps that will be live apps. We've also partnered with the Beale Center that has a STEM or um, STEAM uh, arts exhibit encompassing um, biology, botany, artificial intelligence, and machine learning in the Department of Chemistry, which includes some of several of our CASEL labs. Some of the students will learn how we use lasers to tickle molecules as we, you know, put it in our in our uh, advertisement. We also have is graduate that, students. Is that Kate Rodriguez? No. Oh, somebody so else. There's a lot of, of a lot of molecule tickling going on at CASEL. Yes, okay. yes it is. So that will actually be with Professor Eric Potma. We also um, have some grad students who want to talk about the chemistry of chocolate. So there'll be, you know, some food science going on, tasting of chocolate and um, how do you temper the different chocolates. Um, we also have Professor Nguyen who is also a member of our uh, Castle Labs, who will be talking about how do you use infrared light and UV light to see things that are invisible to the human eye. Um, we also have Wilson Ho, who is a professor in chemistry and also physics, showing um, how you, we use liquid nitrogen in, in the um, in his labs to cool some of his machines, and he has a um, scanning tunneling microscope. So he usually shows the students how that microscope is used to image molecules. But then to also um, see, there's computer coding. There's computer coding. So we we do that. That will be with the um, the app development. So we have various, and we also have um, professors from uh, neurobiology. Um, one of the grad students there who we've partnered with quite often the past two years in several of our outreach experiences who um, Jacques Bordeaux is, is really familiar with is Angeline Eugene. She's a second year grad student in neurobiology and she's going to um, either do a DNA isolation from plants or also show um, students how to take mouse um, brain samples and to look at them under the microscope for the different parts of the, the brain. So, so it's a wh- lot of hands-on activities. All the girls won't be able to do everything, but they'll get at least two rotations um, about 45 minutes long each and really be engulfed in what does it mean to be a scientist, an engineer, uh, an art scientist, or a biologist, physicist, chemist. And I'm thinking there's they, they're going to change their PowerPoints. This is a different audience. So their standard way of presenting their work is completely changed so that pedagogically they are reaching their audience where they are, where these girls are. Yes, yes. So six, we have grade six through twelve. Six through twelve through twelve. Middle school through high school students that we have that will be um, engaged with us that Saturday. So we're really excited. And 
let me give a shout out to all of the labs that that Castle does. They they are everything that Dr. Watt said they were hands-on, discovery-based, problem-solving, question and answer. Uh, and what she is describing is what the kids get to do. And, you know, the teenage kids, the school-age kids that we deal with are famous for their apathy. You know, it takes a lot to get them engaged. Right. You've got to get them up. It's a know? Saturday morning early. You got, you've got so yeah, much to do. And, it's like no minute can be it, squandered. Well, we ah. – they are – those activities are all that in a bag of chips. They they really do uh, work to draw the student in and ask questions that, you know, this is exposure. This is stuff that they are going to see sooner or later. If they pursue a college prep track, they're going to have to do some of this stuff in the classroom. So getting to see it in an informal setting where assessment is not necessarily a big part of what you're doing, but the kids get to see it, ask questions. So when they see it in the classroom, it's not their first exposure. They can say, I've seen this, I've handled this kind of equipment before, I've heard these kinds of questions and vocabulary before not brand new to them. I knew we'd have much more to say than there was time today, and I hate ah. to cut us all off at the knees. There's a, it's an ambitious program, and I want quickly, is there going to be an annual year-to-year event, everybody? We hope to, but, uh, you know, this is our last year of funding for Castle Okay, so fun, but people we'll write a check. Because if you write, After you write your foundation check, write a check to Castle to keep this Please going. Please do. So I, my guests were... Uh. Dr. Daniel Watt and Mr. Jacques Bordeaux, as I said, two essential providers at UCI's Castle, presenting for us next month at a conference that is the Girls in STEAM conference at April 27th for grades 6 through 12. Thank you, Danielle and Jacques, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. As we close, I want to announce that the strike... There's a strike on Friday. Everyone gets assignments. I'm hoping that on that day, that if folks don't have their marching orders, they're going to ask for them. Southern uh, California for Change, SOC for Change, will be partnering with U.S. Climate Strike to host a climate strike event in Orange County. Swedish student Greta Thunberg, 16 years old, began this movement that spread to many countries, including the U.S. In her Davos speech, she said, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day, and then I want you to act. The event takes place this upcoming Friday, Ides in March, March 15th at Main Beach Park in Laguna, California, from 4 to 6 p.m. The idea to accommodate students after school in order for more students and adults to participate. That's my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from Costa Mesa City Council member Arliss Reynolds getting housing stuff done, among other things, on that council. Then we'll have a look at what's going on at the Laguna Art Museum with their self-help graphics goodies. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.